welcome to Anatomy of Tone. This is episode two of a new podcast that I've started all about music production and creation. This week, we're going to talk a bit about why I use analog gear, and we're going to talk about the FSC What the Fuzz pedal that was recently released, which is based on a fuzz face pedal. And we're going to give examples using guitars, bass, and synthesizers, and Mellotron, just to hear how it operates in uh, different situations. I thought I would start the conversation briefly discussing something that has made a big difference in my practice routine recently and a term that I'm calling flow state, uh, which a lot of people refer to refer to as flow, which basically means like this level of focus and concentration, almost like euphoric feeling or, or that moment when you lose yourself doing something that you lose track of time and awareness of so much what's going on around you. Uh, this is something I feel like that generations before us, our grandparents' generations, they were much more likely to experience this due to the lack of technology and distractions that they had. I feel like nowadays we have a lot more competition and, uh, I don't know, uh, roadblocks that prevent us from getting to this state. Um, I was talking to a friend on a gig that was playing at this venue called Bar Bess in Brooklyn, which is an amazing little music venue that has such interesting eclectic music in it and it's always amazing musicians playing there and playing music from all over the world and we we're doing a, a gig playing ska music early ska music and a friend of mine was discussing to me reading this book about flow and how it affected um, their approach and their experience making music and it caused me to reflect a bit on what my experience used to be with music uh, before technology took over, before the World Wide Web, before uh, iPhones, before iPads. Uh, I'm old enough to remember and have experienced time before the technological boom, I would say, or the social media boom. Uh, and it, uh, it was different. When he was started talking about this flow, I started thinking back and being like, oh, I remember I used to have a lot more moments where I would just lose myself, you know, I would be playing for an hour or something and I'd be in a, a darkly lit room or something and creating. And I just feel like I've just time stopped and, and I just entered into this euphoric like state. Um, and yeah, it was just, I won't say it doesn't happen anymore, but it, it was, it's just, well, it doesn't happen as much. And I guess I didn't really think too much why. And I guess part of me maybe realized how distracting social media is because over time I've, I've tried to limit how much I'm using it when I'm recording. It's one thing I've stopped when I'm recording. I don't answer texts. I don't answer emails. I just focus on takes. And, uh, and I do the same thing when I'm composing. Now I try to uh, isolate myself from any kind of notifications or questions or conversations. I'm just living in that world for a while because what happens in order to get into this, this flow, flow state as I called it. I wrote a blog on my website called Anatomy of Guitar Tone, which goes more into detail than I'm going to go here, but you could check that out. And um, and it basically says that it takes about, I think it's about 15, 20 minutes or so to, to enter flow state or flow. And that that's like uninterrupted. That's just doing 
this one task and being immersed in it for that period of time, which doesn't seem like much, but in today's world is a long time. A lot of us have Apple watches and we're constantly tuned into social media and we're getting texts from people and we're just, we're multitasking and humans, despite what you may think are not great at multitasking. We really can only do one thing at a time. And whenever we switch from doing one task to the other task, there is a little bit of delay in our, our brain switching over to that other channel. So it's not really an effective way to, to practice or compose or record to, to be multitasking. Um, so even though I was starting to naturally adapt this into my recording and my composition, I wouldn't say I was good at doing this in my practicing. So when I'm preparing for a gig or I'm trying to practice techniques on my own, whether it's on guitar or like um, lately I've been spending a lot of time working on voice leading on, on guitar and piano. Uh, and uh, I, I was still, you know, sometimes checking text or if somebody messages me, I'll, I'll, I'll take a second and respond. But after really having this conversation with a friend and and uh, doing some more research on it, I just came to the conclusion, obviously, from the research that it just isn't helping me out. Uh, a, I wasn't being uh, being fulfilled in the sense that, I don't know, like, I think it frustrates your brain when you're switching back and forth a lot. You know, you just, you never reach that point of, of losing yourself and you're jumping back and forth. Uh, and so... You know, I think by eliminating a lot of the distractions and, and and having more focused and flow style practices, I find myself progressing faster. I find myself being less frustrated. I feel uh, like I'm succeeding at my goal better or more optimistic about it, even if I'm struggling and having a hard time, as we all do when we're learning new tasks. Uh, it just feels a little bit less like a burden um, or I feel less bummed out if I'm able to enter that that flow state. And that is because a, a chemical thing does actually happen in your body when you allow yourself to get into this flow. So I encourage you, if you want to read more about the article uh, on my blog, um, but I encourage you to incorporate more of this in your rehearsal regimen or your um, uh, recording or composing. Try to at least get 20, 25 minutes in of, uh, of non-notifications. Put your phone in the room or put it in airplane mode or put do not disturb on and um, try to, to, to reduce whatever you can from, from, from that outside world checking in and, and, and bumping you and tapping you in the shoulder and, and taking you out of your dream state, you know. Uh, and see what it does for your playing. I think you'll be surprised and um, I think you'll you'll like the results from it. The next topic I want to discuss is the use of analog gear. I think people approach why they use analog gear a lot from the sound perspective. And it is important. I think software and technology is coming a long way. And there are things that sound pretty good in the digital world. Um, I won't say that they sound exactly the same. I think they sound close enough for some people. And that's fine. And it's at a point where it should not hold you back from making great music. And it doesn't need to. You can certainly make great music with analog emulations. Uh, but it still is not exactly the same quality. But beyond the sound quality and the argument of sound quality, as people will argue about this, 
And I think it's important through this discussion to remember that not everybody hears things the same way, just like everybody's taste buds are a little different. I think there are some people that may hear with more definition and can tell the differences between certain pieces of gear that other people can't. And, uh, and there's not a, you know, I don't have to be judgmental about that. If you don't hear that, if, if you don't hear the difference between say a vintage compressor and a, and a plug-in, then, um, then, you know, there's no shame there, but I definitely feel like there are those of us that do hear it. And, uh, for us, it does matter. So, uh, I think part of the problem with the argument is that people are saying they, there's no difference and it just might be that they don't hear a difference, but, uh, I, wholeheartedly believe that through the difference between a lot of emulations and analog gear, there, there still is a difference, even though sometimes it's debatable if that difference matters for certain applications. But beyond the tonal uh, realm of looking at, at, at the difference between analog and emulations, I want to talk a little bit about the performative aspect of it or the interaction aspect of it. And uh, this tends to be really important to me uh, it, it, it's just as important to me as the difference in the sound quality and sometimes even more uh, because my interaction with gear um, tends to, uh, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I interact with my gear a lot. So uh, I'm constantly grabbing knobs and turning them and uh, automating them in real time as I'm recording. So for instance, if I'm using um, the, uh, the Dave Smith OB6 analog synthesizer, then I want to reach over and grab the filters, or I might want to um, adjust the ADSR in real time, or, um, you know, same thing with the ARP 2600, uh, which has a lot of sliders on it. And partly what makes that synth so powerful is the way that you can manipulate it in real time and how it kind of evolves and how the happy accidents happen. And, uh, and just the, the, trip the voyage that you can go on together and this is a really hard thing to emulate in the digital world partly because of just not being able to touch the knobs all the time i just you know before i bought a lot of the analog synths i was using a mouse and i was using some of the arteria plugins which don't really sound bad to be quite honest to you uh, you know they're not horrible i think my big issue with the arteria plugins is that the sounds of the presets are already um overly affected with effects and processed. And I do like to process synths a lot, but myself, I like to, to choose which delay, which reverb they're going to, and if it's dry. And I like starting from more of a neutral place and being able to add those, uh, those sounds myself. To me, um, it, it's harder for me to use the Arteria stuff because it, it's already processed often in a way that I don't want it to be. But the other issue is trying to set up a MIDI controller to handle um, live automation of all the parameters like there's very few midi controllers that will have enough buttons or knobs and sliders to really handle all the parameters on like say an arp 2600 and and this doesn't even count like dealing with patching and stuff in real time uh and i found it to be an issue i tried to have an arturia midi controller for a while and doing the midi mapping but that just seemed to be like a buzzkill when it came to uh, to being creative in the moment, like sometimes it wasn't working, and then it just it became very clear to me that 
uh, I just needed to be able to immediately reach over and, and be able to make tweaks to something in the moment because it, I just felt like it's it, that's what making art is, you know, and expressing something in the moment. I have to have this interaction, which makes sense because I've always been a fan of like analog delays. Like I have a tube tape echo that I would take around to gigs all the time and still do because of being able to to manipulate it and treat it like an instrument in real time. Um, and so this is why even with the guitar pedals, I'm using analog pedals. I don't use uh, multi-processors, right? Uh, Multi-effects, uh, because I, I'm always interacting with my gear. I've found that anytime I've tried to use something like that, I get on a gig and adjusting a patch live is a bit of a nightmare, uh, especially with the guitar effects. Uh, the gain staging could be off and that's really hard to change. And then it's just, um, it was not a very efficient way of, of uh, making music in a live setting. For me, for the gigs that I was doing, I think for sitting at home and if you're just, you know, playing and, and uh, you want to have a bunch of things saved and, and work through some some things. I think it's a it's a fine tool for certain applications, but I never liked them for recording and I never liked them for live rigs. So uh, for me, it's it's all about having uh, knobs, and uh, I, which means I want the output knob to be accessible and reverbs. I want to be able to affect the um, you know the the various parameters of reverb, the mix and uh, and um, the diffusion, and because uh, I might grab and, and tweak those things live. Um, so I think that's something that just doesn't get talked about enough in uh, the real world, and I think also. In, a lot of people ask me about compression and I've written articles about compression, trying to explain it in a simple manner because often it's complained, or sorry, not complained, but it's explained in a way that's just overly complex and hard to understand. So I tried to simplify that, but I still think that getting an analog compressor and using it and touching the knobs, it's easier to learn than it is with trying to use a plugin and learn a plugin, both for gain staging purposes and just, just getting a feel for it. There's nothing that really compares with, um, with, with the hands-on operation of gear. So for that reason, much of my studio is, is filled with uh, instruments. I don't use a lot of plugins. I do use some plugins for mixing. Uh, the Valhalla reverbs are killer. And I do use some of the UAD plugins after the fact, even though I do record with some compression and I use FabFilter. And I do use a few a few um, plugins for, for mixing, but a lot of my sound creation is done with outboard effects, outboard reverbs, outboard compression, outboard synthesizers, real guitars, real amps, um, because of the uh, the manipulation factor. discussion this week with some musicians online about drums and the difference of the balance between the cymbals and the drums themselves. And I thought it was an interesting conversation because it wasn't something that I learned till many years later that there is a difference for, with a lot of great drummers. There's a difference between the velocity that they're hitting the cymbals with and that they're hitting the drums with. And often you'll find that they're hitting the drums harder than they're hitting the cymbals. Part of this reason is for that naturally, if you hit them both the same volume, the cymbals are just always louder than the drums. They just, the frequencies carry a lot further and um, pop out in rooms a lot more easily, even in like a nicely treated room. So if you're trying to record, that means the cymbals are gonna take over the, the overheads and the room mics. If you're playing live, it means that the drum kit is, the, or the cymbals in the drum kit are going to 
uh, take over a lot of the sound on stage and overshadow the bass drum and the toms and the snare. So what you'll find with a lot of really finesse drummers is that they will be hitting their snare drum harder and the toms harder than they're hitting the cymbals. You can hear John Bonham doing this. Uh, They only use the three mic setup with uh, Led Zeppelin. So John had to be very controlled about how he was hitting those cymbals. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have been hearing the bass bass drum as much as we were. We would just be hearing cymbals. So there's a sign of, of, of great controlled drumming there. He's still playing with power, but he's there's an inner balance going on there. And drummers that are just chewing up their cymbals all the time. Now, I will make an exception here and say that there are some exceptions to this rule where some music likes to have more cymbals than drums. You know, there's um, there's some shoegaze bands or uh, there are there are applications where maybe that's the sound you want. You want mostly to be cymbals with a little bit of drums. That's a conscious decision. And I feel like that's not the norm. Um, that should be more like a, this is a situation where the cymbals just need to be pounded and, and loud and eating everything up because it's supposed to be like this staticky, uh, chaotic kind of sound. But that's not the default. And I catch a lot of drummers uh, who are um, not super experienced hitting the cymbals louder, or, or if not just as loud as the drums. And often it's just, it's so loud in the room and it's so unbalanced. Um, so I encourage you, if you're a drummer, to run this experiment. So I put an iPhone out in the room that you're in and play the drum kit and record yourself and listen just with that simple microphone on an iPhone. Yeah, you could use your earbuds because the speakers on the iPhones aren't great. So do use earbuds that sound good, but listen back and listen to how much the cymbals are eating up in the mix. You know, this doesn't mean you have to ping or tip your cymbals. You could still crash, but think about the balance, right? And keep trying it so that you can adjust your balance so that you get it so that the toms and the snare drum and the bass drum are more present than the cymbals so you could hear them clearly or they're all equally balanced. So a drum kit that is balanced is going to be so much easier to mix live. Uh, even when you're spot micing everything, it's going to be easier to mix live and it's going to be a lot easier to mix in the studio. It's a lot harder to deal with loud cymbals and getting into a lot of other mics to get a great drum sound then you have to resort to spot mics more and then you have to deal with gating and and it just um results in often not not as great as a drum sound as you can get and um a drummer named aaron cummis who uh, was a friend worked with uh um mentioned to me also that one of the things about hitting cymbals too hard is that it actually chokes the sustain of the cymbals. So if you're hitting a cymbal too hard it actually doesn't sustain as much and you're choking it. So experiment with this a little bit and and try and see if it makes a big difference on your next session or your next gig. I bet people will come up to you if you make this adjustment and they'll say, you sounded really great tonight. You know, I think that it's a subconscious thing and people don't even know what they're hearing. It wasn't working except for recording engineers. They know because they're trying to deal with all the cymbal bleed. But a well-balanced drum kit is just people are going to groove and, and, and dig on it more and you're going to be really surprised at the results. Um, and it's not an easy thing to detect yourself because I think adrenaline kicks in and we start playing. So it's easy to, to um, not know exactly where that balance is, which is why checking with the iPhone is a really great idea. 
uh, to be able to get a, a sense as, as the adrenaline's kicking in, like how much do you have to back off the cymbals and get used to the way that feels, you know? Because when you're hitting the drums again, you want your, your right and left hands to be exactly even, but when you go back to playing the cymbals and snare drum, then, then you know, obviously the cymbal hand is gonna be playing a little lighter than the, the, the snare drum hand. So um, it's an interesting experiment. Also, a friend of mine, Yuval Leon, who's uh, another amazing New York City drummer, uh, gave me the, a cool tip too that he was talking about practicing um, playing really quiet uh, just to be able to have more control of the complete dynamic range. So not only do you want to play forcefully and powerfully, but to be able to pull back and go in the opposite direction super far and play super quiet and keep good time is also really important because that just gives you more um variety and flexibility with your instrument. So he was mentioning what he does is he puts the metronome app on the iPhone through just the iPhone speaker, no earbuds, puts it next to him and plays, they put sets the tempo slow because it's harder to play really slow, sets the tempo really slow and then plays along uh, as quiet as he can on the drum kit and make sure that he doesn't lose the the sound with the uh, this the, the the click track coming from the iPhone speaker, which is really tricky because it, the iPhone speaker doesn't really get that loud compared to a drum kit. So it's testing your ability to play quiet and never play louder than the metronome, and also it's testing your your sense of of keeping time even when you're starting to lose the click track a little bit. And a slow tempo is going to expose that more than the high tempo. And I always encourage my students. Uh, whatever instrument I'm teaching, guitar or bass drums, um, to play things as slow as they can. Because if you could play it really slow, you could play it fast. There is something really amazing about that. It doesn't necessarily work in the opposite direction because you play it fast doesn't mean you can play it slow. But if you can control and play something really slow, you can play it faster and faster and faster over time. I want to run some tonal experiments using the FSC What the Fuzz pedal today. It's a new offering from FSC Instruments and it's based on a fuzz face circuit. Now what's interesting about it is that they wanted to recreate the sound of germanium transistors in a fuzz face but using silicon, which is um, interesting uh, because um, there are silicon based um, fuzz faces, the BC-108, um, et cetera, which is more like the Pink Floyd kind of thing, uh, which do its own thing, but don't have as much of that spitty kind of gated kind of sound that the uh, the geranium-based fuzz faces can get. So uh, FSC wanted to try to find a way to get the silicone to, to, uh, to um, react in the same way that germanium did and um, always get myself mixed up there is it silicone or silicon 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 <laughs> um, so i was stumbling a little bit there trying to, to remember that i always I always get those backwards for some reason uh, anyway uh one of the reasons that you might want to use uh, or not use a germanium fuzz face is their sort uh they could be a little cranky or unpredictable. Sometimes that's a lot of fun, but being on stage, uh, it could present some problems. For instance, germanium-based fuzz pedals 
can be cranky with temperatures. So the hotter it gets, the more unpredictable they react and not really unpredictable in a manner that's favorable or creative or cool, more like in a manner that makes them unusable. Also, they're very particular about where they are in your signal chain. So if I take a germanium fuzz face and I place it later in my signal chain, it starts also acting very weirdly to volume knob adjustments or just in general at sound. It, 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 if you put a buffered pedal before it, it could be weird and, and, um, and not get along in a, in a favorable manner. So for those reasons, having the option to try to get some of those cool uh, germanium fuzz face gated sounds, but using a pedal that's a little more flexible uh, can, is, is enticing and exciting. There are two other additions to this pedal that make it different from the original fuzz face circuit. So one of them is that there is a mid boost option that's a toggle switch that you can adjust it to be pre fuzz or post fuzz, which is really a nice tone sculpting feature uh, for one, it can help you live. When you're playing live, sometimes when you kick in a fuzz, you'll notice that it seems like your sound disappears and you could be really be cranking. It's just a frequency thing. Having a lot of low end fuzz just disappears in the mix. But having the option to give a mid boost can make it cut out a little bit more. Now, I have a Vic Audio Mixer Ram's Head 73, I think it was, this is a model, and uh, that's, a, that's a big muff circuit. And he, they did a very similar thing where you can uh, adjust the mid-boost on it, so also make that uh, cut more in a mix because that's another circuit that sometimes gets lost Whereas like the original tone bender, the MK1 can cut through a mix more. It's just got more mid range to it. The fuzz face and sometimes the big muff, they get lost a little more. So being able to mess with the mid range on this is nice for getting your fuzz to cut live, but also to interact with different guitars and amplifiers. It's just a, a great tone, tone sculpting option. The other option is an impedance switch which uh, I was mentioning about there being issues with impedance from pickups and where you're putting it in your pedal chain or if you have a buffered pedal before you. So this allows you to toggle to between high and low impedance to uh, counteract any issues that might come up due to uh, you know the interaction between the pedals and or, or pedals before the uh, what the fuzz or guitars. So nice options for flexibility and being able to place this in multiple places in your chain. I'm going to start off with guitar and then I'm going to move through some keyboard instruments to just give us context of uh, many different ways, including bass, uh, that the uh, fuzz can be used. I'm going to use the FSC what the fuzz pedal with a headstrong little king reverb which is basically a 64 um, princeton reverb amp with a 12 inch speaker that's going to run into the ua aux and then i'm going to hit very hit, lightly hit a effectrode uh, pc 1a tube compressor before going in this is just mostly for uh, very 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 little dynamics manipulation more for tonal uh, augmentation and the guitar i'm using is a 1991 fender american strat but the electronics have all been replaced so there are fsc 1959 pickups in it and also the uh, caps are new old stock caps so i tried out a variety of caps until i found the ones that i liked because i don't like the standard um, orange drops or a lot of the caps that come in the guitar so that is something i'm very particular about uh, but I'm going to start in the bridge pickup, and I'm just going to move around a little bit and hear how it sounds. Now, on the setting I have now, it's almost got like this Octavia-like effect, which is kind of a really cool thing. Let's let's listen. <laughs> ¶¶ 
try a different pickup, the neck. That was with the um, mid boost on pre. Let's put it in the center so it's neutral. So we hear there's like this little bit of an overtone, a ghost of an overtone there, which is really nice. I'm going to put it to post. turn the bias up now because I had the bias really low and that's partly how we're getting those overtones if you really have it gated and choked. That's extremely choked as the bias all the way down so I didn't have it all the way down but depending on where you have the bias knob you can definitely hear that we get some of those it's almost like a bit of a ring modulator effect that happens as the notes are dying out. Now let's put it about midway. Turn up the fuzz, maybe midway. really crank up this fuzz here. Now, one thing um, I'm noticing is that when I was using the synths, adjusting the impedance wasn't really affecting the fuzz too much. But now that I'm using uh, the Stratocaster, it is affecting the sound. When I set the high impedance, I'm getting more fuzz and more top end when I put it to low impedance. definitely hear it cuts some of the high end and it almost seems like there's a little less fuzz too. I actually really like this pedal a lot with this era of Fender amps. Now I'm usually not a fan of fuzz pedals with Fender amps post 1964. Uh, I like them with the tweeds and with the brown era but uh, not so much the black era but I must say this fuzz is I'm working really well with um, with the um, Princeton and uh, a lot of fuzz face circuits I find don't so this is nice this is actually making this a very flexible pedal to use a lot of backline amps because a lot of times we get stuck with you know a, a deluxe reverb or twin reverb or even one of those new blues uh, what are they called the blues devils or whatever which are I, I find very difficult amps to get good tones out of live um, so this is great this is a, a very flexible pedal. Let's hear it through a British amp like a Marshall. I'm going to use a Stratocaster for a few seconds. I'm going to switch to an SG custom with Gemini Mercury One pickups in it. Just to have a comparison between the Stratocaster between uh, both amps. So this is a Marshall SVH20. It's, it's like the new 20 watt Plexi Marshall, which I think is fabulous. Um, Plexis are their own thing. People don't realize actually how bright they are and how intense they are. Um, and uh, crunchy. They get crunchy very quickly. 
And uh, it's always nice to run a fuzz pedal into a lightly crunching amp. That often is some of my favorite sounds. I don't often love a fuzz pedal into a perfectly clean amp, although it was working with the Headstrong. Um, the Headstrong is also just an exceptionally nice sounding amplifier. It's, I think, pretty much the nicest clean Fender sound you can get now. Uh, Wayne um, at, uh, at Headstrong just really knows what he's doing with those amps. So it's not really a surprise there, but um, but still, that sound isn't typically what I go for. You know, a lot of my favorite fuzz tones are into um, slightly uh, overdriven amps, and which the Marshall is. So I'm gonna turn the what the fuzz off, and you can hear the Marshall sound a little bit. And this is the Stratocaster with the volume all the way up. This is into a cab with vintage 30s. I am using the UAD aux uh, and same signal chain. So um, let's kick the what the fuzz on now and compare. And I'm going to ride the volume knob a little bit so you can hear the variances in riding the volume knob, which is what Hendrix did a lot with his fuzz faces. Let's start with all the way up. Switching to an SG Custom now with Mercury One pickups from Gemini. Uh, let's listen. I'm going to switch vibes a little bit here and do something a little heavier. listen with the bias knob all the way back and the mid boost pre let's listen to the mid boost post fuzz now Fuzz all the way up and bias all the way up. Let's listen to the FSC What the Fuzz now with a bass with active pickups. So this is a five string bass uh, with um, probably, I think it's like an early 90s uh, FNA Warwick. Um, with active pickups, so let's just hear how it's going to react to it. Switch a few things around here. I'm going to go to pre-mid-boost. Let's do 
post mid boost. Let's switch gears here and check out some keyboard instruments using the FSC What The Fuzz. This first example is going to be using the Mellotron M4000D Mini with the clavichord um, sound, which was one of the original Mellotron sounds. Uh, let's compare this just with the raw sound of the clavichord, and then I'm going to kick in the uh, FSC um, what the fuzz pedal now i have this running into a surfy bear metal spring reverb pedal which is i think by far the best spring reverb pedal that you can get like nothing compares to this i mean this sounds better than the reissue um fender tube reverb units it's uh it's it's pretty crazy it's really an amazing pedal so um let's let's a b let's check this out have the what the fuzz on the pre mid boost setting um, let's listen to it flat meaning I'm not using the boost the mid boost uh, pre or post and switch to post now So if I pull the volume way down on the Mellotron and the bias knob all the way back, you can get this really cool broken sound. I love these clavichord or clavinet sounds when it comes to doing like a lot of, um, you know, heist music for films and stuff. Uh, and I often like running them through some sort of dirt pedals to, to just make them a little more distorted. And they trick your ears out a little bit because it almost seems like you're, um, it's a guitar, but it's too consistent to be a guitar in some ways. Uh, so it's almost a bit of, um, uh, you know, it plays a trick on your ears. It's almost like an instrument imposter in a sense that you're with the distortion and the, the way it's a, it's a string being plucked. It, it, your mind is telling you this is a guitar, but, um, but it's, uh, it, it isn't. So I, um, I often use the, uh, uh, what have I used? Uh, mm, the tube drive from effect road. Um, I've used the mercury fuzz from Effectro, which is a tube fuzz pedal. Uh, I've used the analog man germanium sunface and, um, and recently I've been using this uh, silicone based FSC, uh, what the fuzz, um, to, uh, to get some of those, uh, menacing kind of, um, tough sounds 
For this example, I'm going to use a Prophet 10, which is um, the new reissue of the original Prophet circuit from Sequential Circuits, and it's um, it's really a, a, an amazing sounding synth. Uh, and um, fully analog, everything I'm using pretty much today, um, I guess, well, the Mellotron's a digital recreation of the Mellotron, but, um, but the samples are, are way higher quality than you would get from uh, anything in a plug-in. So the Marcus, who owns the, the Mellotron company, owns the original master tapes to the Mellotron. And so he transferred them in a super high-res fashion into this new uh, digital Mellotron, which is the M4000D, and they're just far superior to anything. So that, in some ways, is digital, but it really sounds analog. All the other examples from guitars to um, to synths today are going to be uh, analog. So uh, let's listen to the the Prophet 10 sound I have going without the what the fuzz on it from FSC. also mentioned that I'm using a hydrosynth as a controller for the uh, Prophet 10 and there is a, a strip on the hydrosynth that allows me to bend the pitches. Those of you that know about the CS80 from Yamaha will be familiar with this strip and the various functions it can do. Right now I'm basically using it as a, as a pitch bend. So let's turn on the what the fuzz pedal. Right now I have the mid boost post on and I guess the bias is about midway up. I'm going to make a small adjustment to the attack time on the Prophet just to have a little more of a slow fade in. still running through the surfy bare metal. I'm going to pull the bias down. Now up. Switching the mid boost knob to pre.
it's a pretty great sound for horror or any kind of tension cues. I really like using fuzz and distortion pedals on synths because uh, it just, I don't know, the, it, it really kind of messes with the sound and, and creates a different psychological effect. Because remember, the original sound is this. And what reverb you send it to is going to yield completely different results, right? I'm using the Chase Bliss CXM 1978 on the hall setting. I do have modulation. There's a very slow modulation on the reverb. Uh, and then there's a little bit of pre-delay, but otherwise everything else is the same. So let's just listen how, um, I don't know, the reverb reacts a little bit different now. The reverb is post-fuzz, um, so sometimes I might actually put the fuzz post-reverb to even mangle the sound a little bit more and just make it more extreme in, in the, what it's doing to the sound. Uh, let's listen. <laughs> pretty mangled but that's perfect sometimes for certain um i'd say like soundscapes or uh certain effects when you want that uneasy sort of disturbing type of uh, emotive quality okay now i have a pretty simple patch up on the arp 2600 and this is running into the what the fuzz uh, the only effect I'm using on it is the spring reverb built right into the ARP 2600, which is a really unique sounding spring reverb. Uh, so I think you hear some interesting things happening in the reverb now. They're there, but I think one of the things that's happening is the fuzz is accentuating those pitches. So if I turn the what the fuzz off, We can hear that the, the, in the, the reverb, the spring is like a little bit of a, it almost sounds like a different pitch is happening. It's just playing tricks on our ears a little bit, but that gets embellished when I kick in the, uh, the what the fuzz. I'm gonna play with the pre and post knob. So this is post mid boost. Neutral. And adjust the fuzz knob now. I turned the bias all the way down. This is really cool. all the way down and the bias all the way down and with the mid boost pre I'm using the hydrosynth to um, arpeggiate
right now I'm just turning the bias knob and automating it, which could make for an interesting performative aspect to this pedal too. With the bias knob all the way down, it's like gating the signal so you're not hearing those extra, I would say, reflections or pitches from the spring reverb. And as I turn the bias knob up, all of a sudden you hear those pitches again. It's moments like this I really love discovering with gear where you have um, just a moment where you discover that uh, tweaking a, a piece of gear in real time can manipulate the emotion that is happening with the sound. So by adjusting the bias knob, it's changing the expression of, of, of what the music is saying to us just by gating more or it being more open and those high pitches coming in. There's slightly different statements, right? Or there are different expressions or in some ways it's a, it's like a different articulation. I would think about like with um, writing out for violins or something, right? Uh, so there are ways that you can manipulate the sound and is going to be a, a running theme with the podcast. And I wrote an article about using the CXM 1978 in this way. And I'm actually going to talk about um, something I did in a bit using the Mellotron, where I um, I, I manipulated a reverb uh, mix send from a Lexicon Alex B1 in real time to change the emotion of the performance as well. So uh, this is a really cool thing. I'm digging about using the bias knob on this pedal. This is something I will remember and, and put in my memory bank for later uh, as I'm going through and experimenting with different instruments uh, that I can do that and use that to, uh, to twist the expression. Well, I hope that gave you an idea of the various colors and instrument combinations that work with the FSC What the Fuzz pedal, uh, and I think it could work in a lot of different applications. Thank you for joining me for episode two of Anatomy of Tone. Next week, I'll have a new collection of topics to discuss. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at anatomyofguitartone at gmail.com. 